So we're continuing about the Sure Hearts release. Uh, This is a continuation of last night's Dhamma talk and how in our practice we begin to understand how the mind and body work and how they interrelate sometimes, how one thing arising in the body is a cause for something else to arise in the mind and how also the mind can affect the body. It's said that it happens four ways, in fact, as as far as this interrelationship goes. Body affects mind, mind affects body, body affects body, mind affects mind. So we begin to see that in, in our practice, and we're really learning how this small universe that we live within works together and with each other. And this is through the practice of mindful awareness. And mindfulness is not only in the vipassana practice, but we become mindful of metta. We are mindful of equanimity in our practice. These are all mindfulness practices. We're mindful of the precepts and keeping them, refraining from harm. We're mindful of our practice of generosity. So mindfulness is all around we learn how to hopefully bring a more compassionate awareness to our experience. It's it's why we do the metta practice. It's why we do the equanimity practice uh, to create more of a balanced attention to whatever is happening. We learn how to uh, correct the distortions through this ability to be more balanced, more open, more tender with what we see in ourselves or what we see in others, so that it enables us to relax the mind, to see things more easily, and it leads the way to uh, liberation for us. So that as we go along in our practice through the years, we can see that no matter what happens outside of us, And no matter what happens in the fluxing universe inside of us, whether it's gain or loss, praise or blame, uh, all of the other ups and downs of life, we can remain as much as possible and in ever-deepening ways a little more clear, a little more balanced, a little more able to know how to respond to the fluctuations of life that, that happen because we're human, and because we live, we live within this fluxing world of the mind-body, and this fluxing world lives in a bigger world which has countless minds and bodies like that. So we can develop an inward um, stance or place where we can bring our attention to, that we can rely on, that feels a little more like a still forest pool, that no matter what happens on the outside, on the inside, it feels still and clear. Or even if it gets ruffled, we feel that at least we can come back to some stillness and clarity. The ruffledness will settle out. And all of us see that in our being human. So last night, I talked about this in terms of the three pillars of the Dhamma. That's the term that Manindra gave to it. The three pillars that we can rest our practice on, that we can cultivate our practice on. 
that when we cultivate in these three ways, in these three areas, then our practice is onward leading, leading to complete liberation. And along the way, we, uh, we taste the benefits of that. So tonight, more about the varying refinements of happiness and peace. There's that happiness and peace I spoke of last night when we feel a really sense uh, of deep generosity within that starts leading to and uh, cultivating in us this ability to let go over and over again. Uh, not just to let go of our what, what we have materially, but to let go of views and opinions, to let go of our need to be right, um, to let go in general. There's more and more peace inside of us. And we learned that a lot of our practice depends on this letting go. In fact, all of the three pillars of the, of the Dhamma, the Dana, Sila, and Bhavana, uh, in order to be onward moving, it depends a lot on the ability to let go. So all along the way, this uh, mindfulness awareness process has the immediate and far-reaching benefits, how we feel that sense of wonderful uh, peace inside of us by practicing dana. But as the Buddha said, to repeat this sure heart's release quote from him last night, the purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the dhamma is not for gaining merit, nor for good deeds, nor for rapture, nor for concentration, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of the Buddhas. So this is the far-reaching benefit. And along the way, we develop those areas that really need to be developed in order to um, walk the path. When the Buddha gave a teaching, he started with the teaching of generosity when he went to a group or when the group came to him. And then built on that was the teaching of sila, the teaching of morality. So that's what I'd like to um, expand this evening uh, as part of the evening's talk. This sila, sometimes you'll hear it as morality. Morality is such a charged word in our society. So I can say that it's living with the aspiration of non-harming. And I say aspiration because it's not possible to always be perfect. You know, we're always, there's always going to be some place for us. And lessening on the path, though, but there'll be places for us where we feel we transgress. We feel that we do things and say things that are harmful to others, that are harmful to ourselves. And out of great compassion uh, for us, this is why the precepts were given. And they were given in a way that um, kind of pointed out this compassion. Sometimes when we take the precepts from our preceptor, Seda Upandita, he translates them 
I take in this way, I take great care to refrain from killing. I take great care to refrain from stealing, from sexual misconduct, from lying, from indulging in substances that cloud the mind. But what I want to point out here is the beginning. I take great care to undertake the training to refrain. And so it's not a set of commandments, like if you, if you do it the other way and you commit verbal or behavioral um, ways, actions, and speech that harm others and harm ourselves, that we undertake the training again and again and again. And this is out of great compassion. So in the, in the monastic training, there are times I hear of, uh, I haven't participated in it, but I hear of from the monks that every new moon and full moon, they come together, they take the precepts, and also at the same, uh, in the same gathering, they kind of confess to, or they say out loud where they have um, transgressed. And when they do that, um, you know, they, they realize from the kind of acceptance from those around them by undertaking the training again, that they're committing again, yet again, to doing the best we can to refrain from harming in, in any of the ways that we may have transgressed it. And so it's a, you know, coming back into the fold of our family, being accepted again. And so when I take the precepts, I really remember that and, and just remember that I'm taking, I know that I'm not always perfect, but I take them again and again so that I can feel that I'm in the fold of my family and my Dharma family, my immediate family, my community. And basically what we're saying here is we're doing the best we can. And we're saying here that we're aspiring to be the best we can, but we know that we can't always. And that's why we're on this path of purification. It takes training to do this. So we undertake the training over and over again. We harm others through our greed and the ways that we act that out. You know, not just what we want, but the stance we take in our lives of what we think is right, um, holding to that so tightly that it just doesn't harm others, but it harps our own hearts when we do that. We see how the tightening, the suffering that we go through because of that. When we break the precepts, we feel the ripples inside. You know, we, it, it may be for a time that we're thinking about, you know, how it was because of outer conditions. But when we take time to look inside, we feel it doesn't feel so good inside. And I know many times I've come to retreats after arguing with one of the kids or, um, you know, just not having a, a, an easy time with someone in my immediate community. And it takes time for the mind and heart to settle down. And out of compassion, I just give it space to do that. I take great care to undertake this precept. <clears throat> 
And by doing that, I also acknowledge that the mind and heart aren't completely free yet. And that's why I'm practicing. That's why I'm practicing to do that. Remembering once um, a meeting of the staff at Spirit Rock Meditation Center who met with His Holiness the Dalai Lama during a teacher's meeting. And the teachers weren't invited. It was just the staff. But I learned something very um, important that the staff told us that when they were letting us know, uh, the others uh, of us know, what happened in that meeting. And they asked the, His Holiness very directly, are there defilements in your mind? You know, and His Holiness said very directly, oh yes, plenty of them. I, I'm quoting directly what was told to me. Oh yes, plenty of them. But he said something very interesting. He said, but I'm not fooled by them. And so he was acknowledging, you know, I don't really know exactly what's in his mind. I have to um, understand that. But he was acknowledging to me that uh, they come up in the mind, but they're not exactly acted out all the time. Maybe not any time. I don't know. I haven't been around him so much. But so not being fooled by them. You know, they may come up in the mind, but we're not uh, transgressing through our speech or our behavior. I'm adding to that understanding that, you know, when they come up in the mind, they have some karmic footprint in the karmic stream. But when they come up in the mind then they, and they're acted out, then they have a stronger karmic imprint on, on our stream, our karmic stream. So it's really important um, when we understand this not to act it out, speech or behavior, because we are the heirs of that. You know, a, another term, another phrase that we use in the equanimity phrases all beings are owners of their karma, heirs to their karma. This is another way of saying that phrase. So anything that we put out there, um, you know, by speech or behavior, it's, it's more powerful. And our own experience, uh, we feel the rippling of that in our own hearts, in our own minds. So that's um, training, really important to remind ourselves of. Um, one of the most inspiring things about being in Burma for me is hearing the chanting of this every morning. Um, there, where I've gone to practice, there are, the last time there were three places where we would hear, four that we would hear the chanting from, of taking the, the refuges and precepts and the metta chant every morning. So the first place would be from us, you know, the, the, there's a ladies' dorm, and there are ladies downstairs and ladies upstairs. And then there's a men's dorm across from the big um, reservoir. And then there are the young monks who are practicing. And so you hear one of them start taking the precepts. And it really, when you hear it, it really gives you rapture sometimes, you know, just by hearing and knowing what you're hearing, of course. And then another hall begins it. They're not always in unison. They're never in unison, actually. Even our own hall isn't in unison. Um, 
but it's so beautiful to hear. And then you have a sense of like, oh, everybody's taking the precepts. We're all aspiring to do our best to refrain from harming, to refrain from acting out. But of course, there's a lot of acting out, you know, even in the hall, um, where people, nuns, have fights with each other, you know, <laughs> not, not du duking it out, but, you know, where to sit and all of that, and who took what, and um, those kinds of things, you know. So even those in robes aren't angels. And you see that. It just opens your eyes and says, oh, yeah, okay, everybody's aspiring. But then you feel a sense of safety because we're at least making the commitment. And then when you, you walk in the neighborhoods, um, sometimes um, a Sayadaw is in one monastery or there are mon little monasteries everywhere in one place to give a Dhamma talk or in another place. So you hear the, the precepts being chanted right before a talk, for example. So you'll hear it all times of the day and sometimes over the loudspeakers. Um, so, yeah, if you think, I always think, you know, people who, we try to keep the container of the retreat as quiet as, as we can. We say things all the time about it. It's, it's usual for those of you newer to practice. It's very usual for us to say in every retreat, this is not an exception, slow down. It, we say that many times, our teachers say it to us. It's not, it's not about anybody making a mistake, it's just that we say it, it's a, it's a thing we say. But we know people aren't gonna slow down. We, you know, everybody goes at their own pace. So. But we, we say to, to help you to be able to have conditions that are oh, the best for you. And if it doesn't happen, well, that's how it is. People say, keep the silence. You know, there's, there's signs all over, even here. Honor the noble silence. But actually, you, you folks are a whole lot better than in Burma about <laughs> really, like, miles and miles beyond, you know. In Burma, people talk all the time, you know, <laughs> yes. People come into the hall and uh, they, they just, visitors come and they see their relatives and they talk to them, you know, <laughs> or they kneel in front of you and they take a picture while you're sitting, you know, and they tell you, don't open your eyes, you know, they, they talk to you that way. <laughs> Actually, on the way back from a Dharma talk, which is a really lovely time, you know, they give us a little looser time then. We don't have to walk in a line. But on the way back from a Dharma talk, people stop you and they say, Sister, how is your practice today? And you're not bothered at all. You know, it's complete loving kindness. They want to know how you are. Or they say, Sister, I saw that you were moving a lot in your seat, you know. Do you need some buffering? Or, you know, do you need something like that? You know, they, they have it in their pocket ready to give you. So it's, it's just part of, of being in retreat. So I always think, ah, oh, you know, it would be good if all of us just went to Burma. You would have so much appreciation for, I mean, you guys are one of the most quiet retreats that we teach, honestly. You, you're so good at that. And 
um, praise, praise, praise. But (laughs) just, you know, it's good to be flexible, too, about when people are the way they are, just letting it be the way it is. And then sometimes your mind, you just realize your mind isn't bothered at all by someone going quickly beside you or someone talking. It's just like there's that flexibility of mind that comes. So taking these precepts every day is a great boon. It reminds us, this is my aspiration. I may not really complete it uh, or achieve it, but this is my aspiration. So of course, uh, those precepts are straightforward, and um, I don't want to talk about every one of them tonight, but I do want to talk about that one precept is refraining from lying, refraining from telling an untruth, because that's a, a really important one. They're all important. But this one really stood out to me. And someone said today that they were really making the commitment to, um, to refrain from uh, telling an untruth and basically to practice skillful speech. So right on, you know, that's really good. Um, but this particular one, in the precepts, it's more specific. It's refraining from lying, refraining from telling an untruth. In the Eightfold Noble Path, it's the development of wise speech, and it's just more expanded in the Eightfold Noble Path. So here, in the precepts, I want to talk about more specifically um, not saying what is untrue. And I remember um, when I came across this sutta of uh, the Buddha talking to his son, Rahula, he said to Rahula to not to speak an untruth, not even in a joke, not even in jest, to really always be very careful about your speech. And um, this really affected the commitment I have. Not that I'm perfect, Steve will tell you. (laughs) No, it's not about lying. I'm really careful about that. But, you know, right speech is a whole other matter. (laughs) We both remind each other. (laughs) Um, And then also hearing the story actually from Steve for the first time, that when the Bodhisattva in his uh, countless lifetimes to perfect the paramis that you all are Uh, saying every evening, chanting every evening, in his countless lifetimes to perfect those, which one of them is truthfulness, and not breaking the precept of um, refraining from lying, from telling an untruth. He broke every single precept except that one. It said, during his countless lifetimes, to uh, purify his speech and behavior. He never broke that one. And so I thought, well, this must be really important. Didn't really understand the connection or why until I was in a retreat with Seda Upandita. And um, I was in a group interview. Very, it's very good to be in a group interview. You hear what other people are saying about their practice. It, 
it helps you to, to understand what's going on in your own mind. It points things out. So I went to a group interview, and I heard uh, when they were reporting to Seda Upandita, they were saying things like, um, oh, I, I sat for a very long time, and I was with my breath for a long, long time, with hardly a break, you know, no, no interruptions from being with my breath. Of course, that isn't the point of the practice, but that's what they were saying. Or maybe I sat for a long, long time. And Sayada Upandita would ask questions like, oh, no hindrances arising. No, no hindrances arising. <laughs> something like that. So he knew that there was something off about that. That evening, he gave a Dhamma talk, and he said uh, that this precept is really important, especially in telling your report to the teacher. It's not only important to tell the truth, but to be absolutely precise about what you're saying. Precise in a way that you're not harming others, of course, but by the way you're speaking, but to be really truthful. Because he said, how can you realize a truth if you can't speak the truth. If you speak the truth, the truth will come to you. The truth will be shown to you. So it was at that time that I got to be very thoughtful, reflective about how am I speaking? What am I saying? Even in my report to him, that's (coughs) not quite it. And, And how could I be more precise about doing that? I started even timing how long I sat, you know, to the minute, and 23 minutes, you know, like that. Just really looking at the time and seeing when I got up, how long I walked, how long I was laying down and doing practice, just so that my mind would get used to really telling the truth and being precise in what I say. So, of course, you know, that precision in the details is uh, really important to set our own mind straight because when we're talking, we're hearing what we're saying. And sometimes we're not saying exactly the truth, but then we believe the words that come out. When we say, um, like, you know, I had a horrible day. Is that really true? Was it the whole day? Or was it just part of the day? You know, was it just, you know, 30 minutes of the morning sitting? So then, you know, what we say, we tend to believe. And then we feel worse and worse about our practice if it's that. Or we tend to puff ourselves up. Um, The other extreme can be true. The Buddha said that there are two guardians of the world. Two guardians of the world. And when I first heard that, I thought, oh, good, my old Catholic upbringing comes back, you know. Um, all the angels and saints, what are they in Buddhist terms? But then I realized when it was said, these are inner guardians, not outer guardians. And expressed in the Pali words, these are their names. Hiri, H-I-R-I, and Otapa, O-T-T-A-P-P-A. You don't have to remember the Pali words um, unless it's important to you. But those words mean just um, in a nutshell, respect for others and respect for oneself. So when we act and we f- when we refrain from acting in ways that are harmful, 
It's out of this respect for others. We don't want to break the ties of the community that we have. We don't want to um, do anything that will harm others so that they kind of make us an outcast in a way that, you know, maybe they don't feel safe around us. So that kind of breaks the ties of the community. So we have respect for others. And we have respect for ourselves because we know when we transgress in these ways that what it hurts is our own karmic stream, that we will be the heirs of that um, transgression, really. And outwardly, it looks like it's true that other people are affected by that. But we get affected by that over and over and over and over again. Uh, even if it's just by regret that we're affected by it over and over. It it becomes, we feel we can be plagued by regret. Someone said that regret is like being stung by the same bee over and over and over, or wasp over and over and over again. So we feel the ramifications of that. The respect for our own hearts, being careful about the patterns of greed and hatred and delusion that we are, uh, that are being reinforced by our acting upon them. This is in terms of the precepts. Precepts have to do with action and speech. So this understanding uh, protects us. It protects our community. And when that happens, then our inner world can relax and we don't feel our inner world tightened up with regret or heavier still guilt that we're laden with and get plagued with over and over again. So both dana, this um, giving, and sila, these uh, places where we really respect the harmony within ourselves and the harmony among others, they're practices that give us a a more thoughtful attention, being mindful of these practices. So these are, I want to reiterate, these are also mindfulness practices. These practices in and of themselves bring great happiness, feelings of peace inside, the refinement of peace that we feel from giving the refinement of peace that we feel from being in harmony. This is a great boon to our lives as human beings and our practice. We begin to emerge from this small cocoon of our habits or those cow paths that we frequently find ourselves on the path of and not something any bigger than that when we can see beyond that when we can see the paths that are greater and more onward leading to the ones that go around than the ones that go around in circles then it's uh, we catch sight of a horizon that's far reaching that is worthy of all of our efforts Um, so now I'd like to go on Uh, to the third pillar, which is bhavana. And bhavana 
as I mentioned in the beginning, means mental development. And the, words, the word in Pali has the um, meaning uh, etymologically of bringing forth what is not yet developed. Bringing forth what is not yet developed. So in the West, this kind of, um, this is mental development, you know, heart development. Dana and Sila have to do with action and speech. Bhavana has to do with the development of our minds, of our hearts, training the mind, opening the heart. So in the West, mental development usually means acquiring something, acquiring knowledge, learning, and applying that knowledge in the world. Of course, in order to help the world, in order to maybe understand how aspects of the world, the universe work, and when we share, when we share that with others, it, it's a help to them. It's supportive in ways that give greater understanding. But this kind of knowledge is not uh, what the Buddha was talking about in terms of mental development. And yes, of course, we read things of the Dharma, we hear things of the Dharma, and that's knowledge that it's kind of we take it into the mind stream, and then in our practice, we begin to see where it is applied. It's not that we take that knowledge and that's, that's it, that's the end of it. We apply that knowledge to the path of uh, liberation, the practice of liberation. So, um, Understanding and strengthening these capabilities of the mind and the heart lead to the liberation from ignorance and suffering. So ignorance, Steve mentioned that earlier. What is that? Ignorance is in two ways. It means not knowing, and it also means knowing or thinking that we know. But after more practice, we realize that oh, we knew that wrongly. We, we saw that wrongly in the past. And this all begins to open up to us as we continue to do the practice. So ignorance is not knowing and knowing wrongly in those two ways. So bhavana falls into two categories. The first category is the, uh, what we call concentration. Sometimes we hear the word samatha. And the second category is the category of the development of wisdom. Sometimes we hear the word panya. And this is through the practice, developing wisdom is through the practice of vipassana. So concentration leads to that calmness and tranquility that supports our vipassana practice. In and of itself, it does not lead to liberation. But supporting our vipassana practice, it does lead to liberating insight, to transformative understanding, and to that unconditional peace, which uh, is called nibbana. In, in the Sanskrit, it's nirvana. So samatha, concentration practices. There are any of the Brahma-vihara practices that you all have practiced. Metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. Sometimes they're visualization 
practices. In the Theravada lineage, there is the um, visualizing um, balls of light, uh, which are called kasinas. And uh, sometimes there are mantra practices in certain lineages, like in Thailand, they, there's practice of the, um, the word budo all over and over again. I think this, this came from Achan Mun's um, lineage in Thailand. And so this is how it works. Just This can be flushed out more, but I'm just giving you the overview of it. When the mental energy or attention is repeatedly directed or focused on a limited number of objects, like in metta, it's the person, and then it's the phrase, and then it's the feeling that may arise, that may arise through metta. Those are, that's the limited amount of objects that the attention is continually focused on over and over and over again. It can be the breath, where the attention is continually put on the breath over and over and over again. It can be on a sound, for example. Whenever uh, the attention falls off of that experience or that object, we are directed to, when it goes away, we're directed to come back over and over again. This is in samatha, in concentration. This is not in vipassana. So in concentration practices, we just come back to metta or whatever the Brahma-vihara is, or we come back to the kasina, uh, that ball of light that's being visualized, or we come back to the breath over and over. If thinking arises, the the thought is ignored. If if it's not a sound that is the object and a sound arises, that is ignored, and it's coming back to the chosen object repeatedly. In time, the momentum of all of that energized attention is so strong that nothing can come into that force field. Some of you know this through your metta practice, through even the equanimity practices um, that we've done. Some of you stay on the breath longer, and you know that. It feels like the thoughts are very far away. They may be there, but it's not like impinging. It's not like coming into the force field. Someone said today, uh, when we did metta practice today, that it felt like the, um, the, the individual personalities of all the people that were offered metta to were, um, were not individualized anymore. It was just like the sense of metta. There was that... There was more of the concentration at that time, as I read it, of the sense of metta. It wasn't like on any individuals. It was like that feeling of metta that was there. And so this was due to the fact that the attention was brought over and over and over again to that particular place. So this, what happens is the mind becomes so strong in the force field that it feels like nothing can come in just feels like moments of lightness, or there may be light, or there may be actual a a sense of light there. Um, It may feel like a sense of great seclusion from anything else, and mostly seclusion from the hindrances. 
it could feel like they niggle in a little bit, but mostly they float away. And this could be um, for short periods of time. It could be for very long periods of time. The mind is so fixated on that experience that uh, whatever happens, it, it doesn't, um, it's not like a, a rock uh, being thrown into the pond of that concentration. It happens because the mind is so streamlined towards a single point or limited places of uh, experience. And the mind becomes absorbed with that object, with that experience. It happens mainly through repetition and the continuity of our practice on whatever's happening. So in this absorption, one feels either momentarily, many moments, or for a long period of time, extraordinarily calm, very, very tranquil. It feels that the mind, heart, and body are very um, secluded. There's one of the jhanic factors or absorption factors is described as happy comfort of body and mind. And the, the body and mind feel so, feel in that way. Of course, it's a very desirable, enjoyable, and seductive place. We're looking for it over and over again. You know, when it happens, we, you know, when it's gone, where did it go? And then, you know, the next sitting, or maybe in that sitting, we try to find the exact way that we were sitting, you know, the exact tilt of our head, and, um, all of that to try to have that experience again. And as uh, one of you said that we've repeated many times, there's nothing like a good sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of the day. (laughs) Looking for that over and over again. So we have to watch out for attachment to the pleasant experience here. So whenever anybody's experiencing that, we you know, kind of offer out, our, where, as Upandita said to me, was it pleasant? Oh, yes, you know, and I'm quite prideful about that when I've said that before. That was a long time ago. He says, is there attachment to that pleasantness? Oh, uh-oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> see that. So just noticing that will break it up, and you just go back to your practice. It's very exalted, refined state of mind and heart, And the Buddha praised this place, but also warned not to get attached to this area, to use it uh, with our moment-to-moment experience in vipassana. You can do samatha or tranquility practices that will strengthen this concentration. And then before it goes into deeper uh, absorptions, you transfer that what you have so far cultivated to your vipassana practice. So this absorption will last as long as one continues to do that samatha practice, when the momentum of it keeps up and you remain with that degree of focus. But when you stop the practice of this tranquility, eventually um, all of that, that feeling of seclusion dissolves. You don't feel that you're in that mental uh, seclusion anymore. All the hindrances return in time. They're only kept at bay. They're not really uprooted during that time or lessened 
So, <clears throat> of course, it can remain, but it does for as long as, depending how strong your practice is, but eventually it does go away. It supports the deepening of wisdom if you transfer it to your vipassana practice. But this is not the primary aim. Concentration is not what the Buddha was talking about as the sure heart's release. It's temporary freedom from hindrances. That's all. But I know that's great when... (laughs) So tonight, um, I'd like, I hope to fill out the second category of bhavana, which is the development of liberating insight. This is through our vipassana practice. Vipassana means experiencing phenomena as they really are. Sometimes it's just said seeing things as they really are. But more pointedly, it's experiencing phenomena as it really is, moment to moment. So in Vipassana, we're seeing, we're getting this pixelated, that's Steve's term, a pixelated view of um, reality, broken up. We're seeing what phenomena really is, moment to moment. So in this practice of Vipassana, we're opening the attention to all of our experience. Of course, some of us, it, for some of us, it's helpful to use a primary anchor like the breath or the body to begin with and to come back to. But that's not, if we're just coming back to the breath or the body, that's not Vipassana. Just know that that's Samatha practice. Vipassana is when we open the attention to all of the four foundations of mindfulness, to not just the breath, but this, all of the sensations within the body, be, be they plain, uh, painful or pleasant, to um, experience in the mind that is pleasant or unpleasant, uh, to intentions, to mental objects or the hindrances that we, we've been speaking of and to the whole realm of mentality. Everything that arises becomes an object of attention, moment to moment. We're not choosing an object. We try to keep more open so that we see the predominant experience in the moment. When this kind of concentration of being on the object moment to moment is continuous, there's very strong concentration that is developed even in Vipassana practice. This concentration is developed on momentary objects, not on momentary changing objects, not on a single object, but on changing objects. And this is an important distinction to know of in our practice of Vipassana. In Vipassana, Usually, there, there are times when you feel great seclusion. There are times like that in the practice because of concentration. But it isn't always like that. For Vipassana to progress, uh, for insight to arise, sometimes calm and great delight are not there. We're not absorbed in anything for long periods of time because the object is always changing So mindfulness is noticing this change, and mindfulness is always uh, also arising and passing away with the object. 
there are a lot of times, just as a reality check for all of you, that there are a lot of times that the subjective experience of vipassana can be one of chaos. And actually, this is good. <laughs> and many of us try to say, oh, you know, I can't, I can't do it because I'm not calm. Well, calm isn't always a subjective experience of vipassana. We have to allow ourselves to open to what we experience as this chaotic mind. And this is when mindfulness begins to reflect all the changing experience of what's going on in the mind and in the body. We think that our practice isn't very good. We think that it's falling apart. Uh, but actually, this is good. And this is when you report to the teacher, if you've been doing the practice um, sincerely, that you report to the teacher, oh, my practice is falling apart, and the teacher is happy for you. Because you know? <laughs> what you're seeing is that this pixelated view of the mind and body arising and passing away continuously. So this is uh, to think that your practice is falling apart is the wrong evaluation. And that's why you really need a teacher who's been on the path, who knows this, not, not theoretically, but knows this because they themselves have experienced it and gone through it, not just once, but several times. Um, our teacher, Upandita, makes us go through, doesn't make us go through this, it, we go through it, but uh, points it out many times. So this is this part of the practice. So we begin to develop more and more equanimity about all these experiences of body, of mind, arising and passing away over and over again. This is why the Brahma-vihara practice of equanimity is so important, because it supports this equanimity that needs to come about in our vipassana practice. Now, it doesn't come about in the same way that we're developing it in Brahma-viharas, but the Brahma-vihara practice of equanimity majorly supports, can majorly support, our practice in vipassana. When we need to have equanimity to notice the arising and passing away of phenomena when this part of our practice naturally comes. Because this part's important because it's revealing insight into the nature of experience, the true nature of experience. The extraordinary facets of the mind begin to be seen, and the, sub the objects of mind begin to be seen. So one of the first realizations is that in each moment, there is the object of experience and the knowing of it. We've brought this up before. And many of you have described that in certain ways. Um, may not be in that particular language, but there is a seeing of the experience and the knowing of it. And there's almost like this a kind of solidity of a self behind it all starts coming apart. And you start seeing the facets, the phenomena of what we call mind and body that makes up what we call self. So the object and the knowing of it, two things. The solidity of what we think is self begins to fall apart. But this is in a good way. 
then there is a beginning to see the conditionality of all of life. Everything arises due to other things, due to causes and conditions arising and passing away. Nothing really permanently exists in and of itself. Nothing really permanently, solidly exists in and of itself. Things come together and we see that in their coming together, it's dissolving. Then when the mind begins to see even one part of that tangle of events coming together, begins to pick out one part of it and sees that this part of what was this tangle, this part, even that part, arises and passes away and begins to see every single part of what we call these five aggregates of being, the aggregate of the body, the sensations, the aggregate of perception, the aggregate of uh, consciousness, the aggregate of intention, the aggregate of feeling, all of these five uh, aggregates together and singularly are seen as arising and passing away. These are the conditions that come together to make a seeming sense of self. Because of the continuity of practice, um, the the momentum of mindfulness becomes very, very powerful, extraordinarily powerful. And as Manindra says, it pierces, it pierces through the illusion of continuity and the illusion of solidity. What we think is continuous when we've seen it from afar, or like when mindfulness isn't very strong, it seems like, um, for as an example, it seems like when we see something from afar, we can say that, oh, that's a snake, but when we, a moving snake. But when we come closer with the power of mindfulness, which acts like an electron microscope, it's, it's seen that what we thought was a snake was a, a moving line of ants, just as a, a metaphor to what we see closely in this moving line of body and mind. Um, so the solidity of what we once thought was a continuous something is just a pixelated view of something arising and passing away, arising and passing away. The body just becomes elements of hardness and softness, vibration and swaying, uh, kind of heaviness, lightness, warmth and coolness. And it's not viewed as pain anymore. It's not viewed as, oh, this is my arm falling or my leg falling asleep. It's just all these sensations that we might name, we might not name, seeing the evanescence of them, not really solid. And also the mind, um, so ephemeral, and yet we give so much uh, credence to, of course, you know, but there's a lot of it that's not really useful. Manindra used to say that we need sleep because we think so much, not because (laughs) of the physical exertion, but because there's so much that we think of and... um, So we get tired uh, because of seeing so much in the mind that's not so useful. 
we see the mind also very ephemeral. What we think is there's something behind it that's solid or that's controlling the mind. We begin to see that it's just moments of perception, moments of intention. That's why we give the instruction and intention. Moments of the feeling of pleasantness or the feeling of unpleasantness. Uh, Hindrances too, just visitors arising and passing away. So everything that makes up the body and the mind is unceasingly arising, unceasingly changing, unceasingly dissolving. It takes a lot of experiencing of that, depending on the level of uh, delusion in the mind. And it, it takes a lot of seeing that over and over again to finally reach that kind of tipping point where the insight into what it's all about really is into the insight of those, um, those phenomena. One of the insights is the insight into impermanence, anicca. That begins to deepen. The uh, mindfulness begins to reflect and wisdom begins to understand more and more clearly that cannot stay on anything, even for a moment. Everything is transient, fading away, this, this unstable nature. And not only that, in this um, impermanent nature, as uh, one of our teachers points out, it's not only unstable and passing away. If you look at the body or anything about the body, it's, or anything about organic material, it's continually decaying that too. So nothing lasts. We begin to see that can't hold on to anything. And we become, uh, through mindfulness and wisdom, there comes about more and more acceptance of this reality. Sometimes the first insight into it is very scary. But um, later on, That's why fear arises in our practice a lot, because we're opening to these insights. So as we open to anicca, the insight to impermanence, there begins to be more and more relaxation around it. It's more and more okay. But that can lead into the insight into dukkha, the insight into the fact that there's nothing that is permanently going to give us any happiness nothing in this outside world, not a person, not a set of conditions, not anything. Everything is decaying. Everything is impermanent. Nothing is going to last. So where in this world, outside world, inside world, can we hold on to anything? Because of this realization, there is the realization of the insight into dukkha insight into the unsatisfactoriness of all of life, of all of these conditions of life. So the mind begins to stop reaching out to hold on to anything. When it's craving or clinging, it begins to see the uselessness of that. And we grow into this more and more as we see, as we deepen into the insight into impermanence. The Buddha said to his bhikkhus, form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent. 
Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. What is impermanent is suffering. So insight into dukkha begins to arise. And then from that, the insight into this um, not-self understanding, insight into anatta begins to arise. The Buddha said to his son, Rahula, develop meditation on the perception of impermanence. For when you develop meditation on the perception of impermanence, the conceit, I am, will be abandoned. So insight to anatta, very um, challenging understanding if you try to use words to point to it. It's usually through our own experiential understanding, again, when we see that um, what we call self is this uh, coming together of these khandas, these uh, aggregates of body and mind, of sensations, what we make up as body, perception, feelings, uh, volitional, um, like chetana or um, uh, intentions, and consciousness itself, begin to see that whatever in what we call this self begins to arise and pass away in every single at every single aspect of every, every single moment of seeing these experiences, it's dissolving. It's arising, it's changing, it's dissolving. There's nothing that we can point to and hold on to in any particular area that, is, that we could call a solid self. There is a sense of self that we have to work with in this relative existence, and that is true. That is a relative truth. We have to work with the relative, and we have to work with the absolute in, in our practice. So um, I want to read this from Nagarjuna. The Dhamma taught by the Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without, realizing, without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. So when I talk about these things, it's just the pointing out. We really have to experience it. And in, with regards to not-self, the sense of self, on a relative level, as Nagarjuna talks about the partial truths of the world, there is a self we have to act and relate uh, from and in that place. But that isn't the whole truth. In Vipassana, we're learning how to accept deeper truths and live in alignment with all of the truths. So. This is also from, this is from Trungpa Rinpoche. The experience of oneself relating to other things is actually a momentary discrimination, a fleeting thought. If we generate these fleeting thoughts fast enough, we can create the illusion of continuity and solidity. Like watching a movie, the individual film frames are played so quickly 
They generate the illusion of continued movement. So we build up an idea, a preconception, that self and other are solid and continuous. And once we have this idea, we manipulate our thoughts to confirm it, and we are afraid of contrary evidence. It is the fear of exposing this, or the denial of impermanence, that imprisons us. Imprisons us in ignorance, he means to say. So when these truths or when these insights are open to, and it's slow, it's a natural unfolding in our practice, we begin to become, um, we come more in alignment with them, of knowing them, of living our lives, uh, understanding them, knowing, of course, that we must work within the precepts and we must offer and receive loving kindness, but that isn't the deepest understanding. Our minds and hearts stop clinging, and we start letting go more. As um, Manindra would say to us often, nothing more than when we go into report, he'd just say, let go, let go, let go, let go. Let go of all of your preconceived ideas. Let go of anything that you're clinging to. Just open to what is being shown to you in these moments. Form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, volitional formations are impermanent, consciousness also impermanent. What is impermanent is suffering. What is suffering is not self. So the momentum of all of that continuity of our practice and the deepening of wisdom brings us to such a powerful place in our practice. Because the mind is able to see this over and over and over again, all of these formations arising and passing away, there is a very deep equanimity, very powerful equanimity that's developed. It's sometimes called um, the six-limbed equanimity, or uh, because it's equanimity at all formations, at every sense door, including the mind, so at all six sense doors. Sometimes it's called sankhara upekka. Upekka is equanimity. Sankhara is all the formations that arise because everything that arises, every fear that happens in, in this opening is just seen as another dissolving phenomena. Nothing solid, nothing to hang on to, nothing to fear. And uh, the power of our practice becomes so phenomenally strong at that point that it can do nothing else but from that point leap into what is called the unconditioned. You can't make it go there. There's nobody that can make it go there at that point. It's just the natural unfolding of the practice to go in that direction. It cannot be described because there's nothing to describe in that area. It's a non-thing. The Buddha called it the unmade, the unborn. It's a cessation of all experience, including the cessation of consciousness itself. So there is no like consciousness there knowing anything. This is a point of argument with um, 
but there, there is a cessation of all of these uh, aggregates individually and collectively. So this is from the Udana, the sacred utterances of the Buddha. There is monks, there is monks, an unborn, an unbecome, an unmade, an uncompounded. If there were not this unborn, unmade, uncompounded, then there would be no deliverance here visible from that which is born, made, compounded. But since there is this unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded, a deliverance is possible from that which is born, become, made, uh, and compounded. And he continues in another sutta. I will teach you the far shore, the subtle, the difficult to see, the stable, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the secure, the destruction of craving, the amazing, nibbana, the unafflicted, dispassion, purity, freedom, the unadhesive, the island, the shelter, the refuge, nibbana. So this holy life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood, its end. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.